0: Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season two, episode two, and today we are going to be talking about Dune from 2021. Uh, all the way back to 2021. (laughs) As always, my name is Zachary Orts, and I am one of your co-hosts, and chortling along with me over there is my good buddy Matthew Watkins. How you doing, Matt? Doing good. How about you, Zach? Good. Uh, This is our most recent film, so we're going to be current this time. It's our most up-to-date podcast we've done, even though we won't be released for another six weeks or so. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we, we were thinking about if there's a way we could time it so it would come out as Dune came out, but it was just impossible. Um, but, you know, excited to take a look at this one and uh, think about uh, this movie that just came out and the experience of seeing it and have a lot of thoughts.
0: Yeah, so why don't we uh, kick it off? One thing I was thinking we could do is for movies where it's clear we don't have any personal history with it we might talk a little bit about our experience with the source material or our expectations going in or like what baggage we brought to the movie even though uh, you did see this one twice so why don't you talk a little bit about your how you viewed it and what you brought to it yeah so coming into the movie i have read Doom,
1: like three times I think the I, uh-huh. I haven't read it a ton not like you know the Dune fan base is very fervent and very strong uh, but I'm familiar with the book and I've read the first three Dune books um, and I've read them a handful of times um, and I really enjoyed Dune when I read it back in you know over 20 years ago and when I was in high school but And I've always kind of wanted to see a good film adaptation of it. Um, I've never seen the 1984 version of the film, um, and I've always kind of wanted to, but uh, I haven't really ever gotten around to it. So I was excited uh, for this one to come out. I've been really excited after seeing the trailers, uh, and it's been... I've had this one marked on my calendar for when it came out for this entire year. Uh, I wanted to see what they could do with it. The cast... Looked phenomenal. Um, I watched this. The cast is phenomenal. yes, it's it really is. There's just so many yeah. incredible actors uh, in this film, um, and the cinematography looked really good. So that's that's all that's all I'm really looking for going in. Have a, having a great cast and good cinematography. Uh, I knew that I was probably going to enjoy this one, uh, whatever they ended up doing with it. Um, I ended up watching it uh, the day that it came out on uh, HBO Max. I watched it with my son. We watched it together, um, and then I watched it again um, as a double feature um, after watching uh, Marvel's Eternals. So I went right back in and watched it again. So,
0: oh, you did Eternals first, and then yeah, I did Dune. Eternals
1: first because I was like, you know, I want to be fresh and ready uh, for Eternals, um, and then went back and watched uh, watched Dune immediately afterwards for seven hours uh, in the movie theater.
0: That's a big day in the theater. That reminds me of uh, when I was in college. We double-featured the Dark Knight into Mamma Mia. <laughs> that sounds fun. A duo for the ages. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different than my experiences. I
1: was sitting watching Dune, and I was like, wait. I feel like I just watched the same movie twice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, not that way for uh, for Batman into into Mamma Mia.
0: Yeah. Um, so my history. I have. I read Dune. Uh, I tried to look it up, but I read it before I have record of the books that I read. Um, so I have record all the way back to 2009 of every book I've read, what day I started it and what day I finished it. So I read it sometime before then, but I'm pretty sure I read it in high school. So that would have been sometime between 2001 and 2005. And I would not say that it was like, it was a book I kind of trudged my way through. I had a lot of trouble reading it. And um, it's one that I've always meant to go back to, um, especially so that I can check out the rest of the series. And honestly, if we were not doing the podcast, and if we weren't Planning on watching the movie for the podcast, I probably would have reread it so that because I like being able to read stuff before I watch stuff, I think that's a pretty normal thing for most people. But I thought it would be nice to get a fresher reaction to it. So, and then my baggage going in was I think I had heard almost exclusively. Good things, good to great things about this movie. Um, so my expectations were pretty high, and my excitement level was pretty high. That's what I brought to it, and I'll I'll leave you in spe- in suspense for the our little time period section, and then we'll talk about our reaction for the film Sounds as good. we normally do. Um, so one thing that I. <laughs> Obviously, this movie is coming out in 2021, so there's not a ton to catch you up on for history, but I thought that something we could do is we could talk about what is going on that makes this movie feel relevant to the time period right now or what is surrounding it that we're thinking about in this time so that. In the future, when there's a time capsule that finds this podcast, they'll sort of be able to place it with what was impacting us at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the thing the thing that surrounds Dune at this moment for me is we are at a nexus right now. We're at a threshold where there are three properties, three major genre fiction properties that have widely been considered unfilmable, and they're all getting filmed and released. Well, they have all been filmed and are getting released within about a three-month span of each other. Um, So that's the Foundation TV series, which is running on Apple Plus right now. By the time this comes out, it'll have ended. That's Dune, which had the first movie, uh, we're talking about now, and then the second movie in a couple years, and then the Wheel of Time TV series on Amazon Prime, which I believe by the time this episode comes out, you all will know, will at least have some semblance of how successful that has been. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to run down the major milestones as I've experienced them or the major milestones as I've seen them of the genre fiction adaptations just to sort of see how we got to this point and so the ones that I picked out or at least over the last couple decades you can go we were talking before the pod you can go back to 93 with Jurassic Park but we're just going to start in 2000 so in 2000 the the modern superhero craze I feel like, really kicked off with X-Men and (laughs) superhero. It showed that modern technology could make superhero movies that would transcend nerd culture, I think, and superhero movies haven't let up their grasp on the movie industry ever since. In 2001, there were two monster epics that started. One of them was Very recent. The Harry Potter series had their first movie, and the book series was not complete at that point. So, pretty big jump to just start filming and hope they finish all the books. And then, of course, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I like looking back, it still is sort of unfathomable that they just did such a good job with those movies and they were as successful as they were being a trilogy that I believe was greenlit from the beginning, and each movie is three-plus hours, and the budget is just astronomical. Anyway, we'll talk about (laughs) Lord of the Rings at a future time. Yeah, I do want to add just
1: on this list, um, it feels like to me the thing that really set up these two decades uh, of all these genre things is the Lord of the Rings because they were so critically well-regarded, even to the point of all of them were nominated for a huge number of Academy Awards and The Return of the King ended up winning Best Picture and that was just unheard of at the time for genre films like this.
0: Yeah absolutely because when I was looking at starting to make this list Lord of the Rings was really the first thing I thought about putting on and then X-Men I put on as I was sort of Doing research, it was a (laughs) Wikipedia deep dive add-in rather than a an emotional add-on or something that I remembered as being. I think it's more transformative looking back than it felt at the time. And so then in two thousand two, the Raimi Spider-Man trilogy kicked off, and then in two thousand five, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy kicked off, which was wildly popular and also brought a grittiness or a darkness to superhero films that uh, at least was very different from the Spider-Man trilogy that had just started three years earlier. And then in 2008 was when Marvel released their first movie. So we have Iron Man 1 in 2008. And then it won't be, I feel like Iron Man, again, is one of those similar to X-Men where it feels a little revisionist to point it out now. But then in 2012 was when Avengers released and it was just like, oh, they are going to do a five movie tie in and they're going to be able to make it work and have it be wildly successful.
1: Now, 25 movies later, it's the biggest thing in cinema. Yep.
0: Yep. And then we have a trio of TV shows. So Game of Thrones started in 2011, which, my goodness, I had forgotten it was so long ago. ago. Um, I know, The Expanse in 2015, and then The Handmaid's Tale in 2017. And yeah, as I said, now we're sitting on... His Dark Materials is in process, Foundation, Dune, Wheel of Time, and then upcoming in 2022 is Sandman. So it's just a plethora of big budget IP that seems like it would be impossible to bring to screen just because of the scope or the technology required or the amount of people you're going to anger when you adapt it and inevitably make changes. Um, Yeah, it
1: feels like uh, all of these things were things that were either called unfilmable or that people thought you couldn't do, like you couldn't really do it for uh, a modern audience. And then the floodgates kind of opened up in 2000 and 2001 and I think people just kind of saw that you can film anything and you, you can figure out a way to make it. And along with that, pretty much every one of these projects, I'm looking at the list here and... I just think every single one of these projects is something, except for Harry Potter. So besides Harry Potter, every one of these projects was something that has gone through development hell, just like, uh, tons of different drafts and revisions and passed around between different studios and, you know, different directors have, uh, have attempted different things over, over decades. And, um, like I said, Harry Potter is the only one on this list that did not go through that same kind of process. Um... I don't know. It's kind of... Uh, e- even Harry Potter was a little bit tricky because it was difficult for them to get all the kids together for it. But uh, so many unfilmable things that are now on film.
0: What a world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> yeah, really, really, really lucky. So, anyway, that brings us to 2021. And I think you had a couple couple things you wanted to talk about that were on your mind, yeah?
1: Yeah, so the biggest thing for me um, is that this film is releasing, it feels like there's never going to be an end to this COVID-19 pan- pandemic. Um, but, you know, uh, perhaps at this point with vaccines available to um, in the U S to kids that are five to 11, we may be seeing something of a light at the end of the tunnel for this thing. Uh, but, you know, for, for most of us, for me and for you, um, the, past year and a half two years about has been essentially spent locked in our houses um and you know kind of scraping together trying to survive and that's a lot of where this the idea for this tv or this podcast came about of stream it, and um just being unable to go to the movie theaters and things like that has made for a different kind of experience and i remember when dune was Uh, on the schedule and i was thinking the the pandemic was so forefront in my mind and i wasn't sure if i would even be i wanted to see it in theater so bad i didn't wasn't sure if i would even be able to see it by the time it came out um and that's when it was announced that hbo max would be um purchasing a a deal with uh with oh i can't remember which studio it is that, that, that that made this all of a sudden uh but they purchased all oh, either
0: legendary or Warner Brothers would be my guess yeah I mean, it's
1: it's Warner Brothers I just was my, my brain was farting there uh but they made a deal with Warner Brothers to be able to release a bunch of their films directly to HBO Max on the same day as the theater release uh and this was a huge move at the time period when it happened uh in December of of 2020 uh, when they announced this um and uh, I have watched several movies same day of release uh, on HBO Max since then, um, and it, it was seeming like for a while that, that a lot of the studios were going to be moving towards this model of releasing films on the same day on some kind of streaming thing for a premium, uh, and then uh, having it in theaters the, the same day. And that was seemed to be going really strong until disney released black widow with the same day uh, um streaming release and there was so much uh financial blowback um that uh i'm skeptical of of how much w- the streaming was responsible for but that is what the media uh blamed the the financial um the depressed financial figures for that film on uh and so this is this film is coming out kind of at the tail of that uh, but this idea of uh, you know films and uh, watching them in the theater versus watching them on streaming and how that affects your experience has been very top of mind for me, uh, in particular with Dune as this film came out.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think that's going to be really interesting because there, you got the experience of seeing it in both, and there, there were challenges with this movie, with watching it at home that we'll get into, but I think there are also would have been challenges, at least for me, watching it in the movie theater. Um, so do, do, you, do you have anything else you want to say about this time period or should we move on to reaction?
1: Uh, we can, yeah, let's move okay. on to reaction.
0: Yes. Yeah, cause, and because then I can get into that. So um I'll go first since it's sort of a little little bit of a segue. Um I liked this film. I I really liked this film. I would not say that I loved it. Um there I think I think if I had watched it before I had watched any of Foundation, I probably would have loved it. But it really had that problem of I just feel like Foundation is so much better. And in a lot of ways, because I think the style of story that they both are telling is so much better suited to a serialized storytelling that Foundation is able to accomplish, like being able to split your story into uh 10 50 minute pieces rather than having to split it into two uh what 150 pieces I think you're able to make that arc go a lot better um you're able to sort of punch things up where they are and the having time to marinate on things especially for a movie like this where for so much of the time, it's intentional that you're playing catch up. Um, that is something that's sort of baked in if they're going to do as little exposition as they did for this movie um, for something that <laughs> has an entire world. Um, but if you do episodes, then you have like all week to talk about the world building and like listen to podcasts, talk to friends about it, that sort of stuff. Um, that, man, I just think it would have been, it would have been more impactful that way.
1: (laughs) I would have enjoyed it more for sure. And and same, uh, we're, we're both, I think on the same page on this where, uh, I've been, we've been watching, uh, Foundation and chatting about it and I just, you know, I've just been enjoying that TV series a lot more than I enjoyed, enjoyed this film. Uh, the big downside of course, is that if you release Dune as a TV series, you can't watch it in IMAX, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, a this experience of going to the movie theater um, and watching it on this huge screen uh, is a big part of what people were gunning for with with this film, with Dune, uh, and being able to see it on the biggest screen possible with the sound um, and all uh, uh, the way that it's put together in the music. Um, it is intended to be an in-theater massive uh experience um and yeah i don't know it's it's hard for me i having done both i don't know i i there was um for me the experience of watching this film I, I really enjoyed watching this film as well uh but i couldn't help comparing it to so many other things like for example eternals which i just watched and which i just liked more um and uh for you know um even and that one I watched in the movie theater in IMAX as well so it's it's hard for me to place exactly where I'm thinking about this film or feeling about this film.
0: Yeah so one of the things that I'm I wanted to ask you about this because I know you saw it in both home and IMAX was I we had a lot of trouble in our home setup where, And so for people who don't know, my wife and I, we live in an apartment building. We're in New Jersey. And so we um, sound is not like a huge issue here, but it is not one of those things where we um, like we have we haven't invested in a big sound system because even if we did, like there's a limit to how loud we would feel comfortable watching the movies just because We don't really like it when we hear sound from other people's apartments, and we don't want to inflict that on other people. Um, So we just have the TV sound, which um, is fine. It's not something that I normally think of as like, oh, I wish our sound was better. But in this case... It felt like the highs for this movie were, like, the highs in volume were exceptionally loud, and the quiets were exceptionally quiet. And so I spent a lot of time, I tried not to do too much because Mare and I were watching it together and I didn't want to drive her crazy, but riding the volume where it would get too loud and I'd have to turn it down. And then there's a lot of whispering that, because it's like you just can't set a median volume when that's the case and so i missed a lot of whispering dialogue that because i just couldn't turn it up that loud because i didn't want to bother my neighbors you know
1: honestly i found that problem worse in the movie theater um oh wow yeah because you know like it's so high and so i i think you're accurate on this that it's so high and it's so low like it's still quiet in the theater when it gets to the lows and that loud stuff is just like shaking your seat you feel like you're gonna fall out of it um and you can pick up you know what's going on but for me the biggest difference between them uh so having done both i enjoyed it a lot more at home
0: um like a lot more
1: at home um And the biggest reason why is because I had the subtitles. Um, And so it's for the exact same thing that you're thinking of here that you're talking about is I just was watching it with the subtitles so I didn't have to worry about, you know, when they're whispering, not hearing it. I just read what they said on the screen. Um, And uh, just one of the things for me, I, I love to watch things with subtitles. I watch everything at home with subtitles on. Uh, If I could just force you know if I could choose when I was going to the movie theater to have a showing that just shows the subtitles at the bottom of the screen I would choose it every single time over a different option I know that you can get like uh, glasses or whatever you can put on but I find those very distracting uh, and make it harder for me to just immerse myself in the film. And then additionally with this one, I really liked being able to stop and start this one at different points. I was watching it with Ethan and there were several points where, you know, I could stop it and say, what do you think of that that part? And we could like discuss it for a second when it was over, you know, a lot going on or a little bit overwhelming Uh, in the theater. We would have that conversation, like as the film is going, um, you know, quietly whispering to each other, uh, just asking questions or whatever it might be. But being able to pause and do that was great. Being able to, this movie is so long um, and you know, since I double featured it I had to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle and so when I'm watching it at home I can just pause it and go to the bathroom and come back I don't know I just I really I really did enjoy it more at home I I still enjoyed watching it at the theater and I thought that was a great experience but but for me the home viewing experience the streaming experience was a better way for me to enjoy it
0: yeah while I was complaining about the volume Mary messaged me and said captions (laughs) um, it's a it's a bit of a fight we have I don't man i i wish i could do it i don't know what it is about my brain but subtitles i like once they turn on then i spend all this time like trying to guess the timing and worried about the timing and i stop like being able to i i just like i can't focus on the movie i can't watch it anymore i don't yeah i don't know it's you know for me as an experience my dad is hard of hearing um
1: so uh, growing up subtitles were on for everything always so for me with ADHD you know just having part of my ADHD expresses itself as a like um sensory processing disorder specifically sound processing disorder so when there's a lot of sound going on like music going on and people talking at the same time it becomes very difficult for me to process what it is that they're saying and I find subtitles so important for that and it's an integral part of the way that I watch movies and a lot of it is just habit I'm so used to doing them and you know if the if subtitles Get messed up in their bad subtitles, like it's a weird color or it's not, you know, it's not in a good spot on the screen, or if it's too small or too big. That does take me out of a film, but you know, typically it does not affect my immersion at all and makes it a lot easier for me to understand what's going on.
0: Yeah. I gotta. I really do. The the being able to pause at home was was the thing that I was going to cite as making this a better experience at home than it would have been in the theater. I mean, there were several times, as I said, because we're playing catch-up so much of the time, there were several times we paused just to make sure we like understood what was going on. And I understand that like, maybe some of that... I, you could make an argument that playing that catch-up is like, better and it's better to just be in the movie and that's fine or whatever, but the biggest thing for me, and we've now talked about it a fair amount, but the aphantasia makes it really hard for me to recognize people. And the one of the things that I rely on in movies is contextual clues like costuming or voices or just the easiest one are continuous scenes. And so this movie had a lot of... Um, dimly lit but also it's like a
1: nightmare for all of that stuff yeah Yeah, because I mean the costuming is all over the place and it's jumping back and forth in the timeline and you can barely hear what they're saying at different points yeah
0: the jumping back and forth was the big one especially when we were dealing with Paul's visions because it's not continuous and so it's just like if they flash to someone in a vision and that per- like you're supposed to be able to recognize them from their two seconds of face time in that vision, like I'm just dead. There's no th- there's no way that I'm gonna be able to grok what's happening there. And so when we when we watch movies at home, like I f- I have no problem just saying who is that. And you know if if it bothers Mary that I ask her, she hasn't hasn't said. Um, But that's not something that I feel comfortable doing in the movie theater because, you know, I don't like it when I can hear people talk in the movie theater and it's just so much hassle to whisper. Whatnot, uh, so. and
1: then the other thing that I this is a more general thing, not to me specific, but um, being able to stream a movie at home is so so much more accessible for a lot of different people, and I I think sometimes uh, people forget that the big ones for me being you know uh, uh, disabled people and people with kids. <laughs> I just can't imagine mm-hmm. uh, if I had been like a young dad with my kids trying to you know figure out three hours where I could put aside to go to the movie theater and. And leaving my kids at home with my spouse and just saying hey you know I'm gonna go spend the whole night watching this uh, watching this movie Good, best of luck or you know uh, people that are disabled and have a hard time getting out to the movie theater or especially in the middle of this pandemic you're at risk of you're putting your life at risk to go to the movie theater having the option to to watch these things on the day of release online is so tremendous and so I, I love it so much and I wish that it would that Studios could find a way to do this uh, in a way that you know still works for their budgets and things like that. Because I would do a lot more movies, and I would be perfectly willing to pay the same prices. Uh, You know, I if if I'm going to spend thirty dollars to watch a movie at at home on streaming, I'm okay with that compared to spending thirty dollars going to the movie theater. And I know that's not a popular opinion, Uh, but for me. I'm willing to do that on the day of release because I like the streaming experience uh, so much in in comparison not that I don't love the theater I also love the theater but you know I just it's a really useful th- for, thing for me to be able to choose
0: yeah I completely agree I mean we did it for Black Widow we sp- spent the money to do it and the it's been <laughs> It sucked. Like I haven't seen Shang Chi or Shang Chi. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, Shang Chi. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. I haven't been able to see it because, uh, well, I mean, we don't. Have, we we're waiting until we got our booster shot for the vaccine, um, which we now have. So I'll be able to go see movies in a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, it's. It sucked having to wait, you know? Like, I want to be able to talk with you about this movie. That I and loved! And we like,
1: haven't yeah. been able to talk about it, yeah. And so, yeah. things like that. And it's really been top of mind for me during the pandemic because of all this. And unfortunately, it seems like that is not the way of the future. And it seems like the studios are kind of trying to kill off same-day streaming as much as possible at this point. Yeah,
0: which which is a bummer. But, all I mean, all that being said, like, I did still really like this movie. I, I told Mare afterwards, I was like... Like I think I'd give it like a 7.5 out of 10. Mm -hmm. And I I thought I was going to be at like a 9 out of 10. So I was pretty disappointed to have it have it there.
1: Yeah, yeah, so. I, I, am about at the same place. Probably a 7, 7.5 seven out of ten, somewhere in that range. Though I do want to add one thing at the end of this uh, this conversation. If you can do both, I highly recommend doing both to to the audience because there are there is value that you get out of this in seeing it in theater that you just cannot get from watching it on streaming. It is, you know, I love going to IMAX theaters and sitting down and, you know, in my seats. And the our theater has these nice recliner seats that are so spacious and have that nice huge armrests and you sit down. And that movie just turns on and it is it's just so big and so expansive and this movie has so many of these very wide shots that just feel like you're being absorbed into the world and those were very good uh, in an mm-hmm. IMAX theater it's, i cannot deny those things it is a different experience it's they're just they're two experiences that are not the same experience i liked both of them uh, i find both of them valuable and i you know I want people to be able to watch movies whatever way works for them. But for me, I would really love seeing it both ways.
0: Yeah, there's also a mental thing. I'm pretty good when I'm at home that I, if I'm watching, if we're watching TV or watching a movie, I'm pretty good at not looking at my phone, like having my phone down and it's not something that I'm distracted by. But there is still it's just like a different mm-hmm. feeling when I go into a movie theater. And even though my phone's always on silent movie theater or the theater theater, <laughs> assuming we can never do that again, um, like I turn I turn my phone off and it just it feels different. It feels more freeing. And I'm not I'm not going to do that at home, yeah, exactly. you know, because if I pause the movie to get a drink of water, I have right. to check the sports scores, you know, like it's just.
1: It, it's true. for For me, um, going to the theater is often kind of you know kind of ritualistic. I often call it church. You know, it's a. Uh, it just it is feels like you're going in I do a lot of different things that are kind of you know like I'll get popcorn and I'll hold it like kind of in a certain way because I'm trying to balance it you know in a particular way and I'll have my drink in the same place and I'll choose out my clothes before I go because I want to choose things that are going to be comfortable that are, will be warm if it gets cold in the theater all of these kinds of choices I'm making that have turned it into an almost ritualistic experience um, and so it's really easy once I go through all those steps to then completely just lose myself in the story that's being told. Yeah.
0: All right. So let's talk a little bit about the personnel here. Um, There were a lot of great people who went into this movie. Um, We just pulled a few of them to talk about. I did want to quickly mention because I got... The, this movie was produced by Legendary Pictures, and I got sick of seeing Legendary Pictures before films and not having any understanding <laughs> of what that meant. So I did go and look up the history of Legendary Pictures and it turns out their first film was in 2005 with Batman Begins. Since then uh, they've done 53 films, 38 of them are theatrical releases and Legendary is, they're like a media company so they have a film division, they have a TV division, they have a comics division and I think they have a video game division as well. So I mean they have a really wide swath of movies. The majority of what they do are co-productions. So they recently did Enola Holmes, which was on Netflix. They also did all of the DC movies up until Man of Steel, at which point I believe Warner Brothers took it back, and just a few other movies that they did that I thought was interesting. So they did Steve Jobs, they did Pacific Rim, both of the Pacific Rims, and Watchmen, which is DC as well, and uh, Lady in the Water, well, which for I Watchmen,
1: was... For Watchmen, was that the film or the TV show? The film,
0: not the TV okay. show. Well, actually, I just looked at their list of films, so I'm not sure if they did the TV show or not.
1: That's
0: okay. I'll, I'll look it up and let people know. The, but what I did want to mention was they've only done five films that were not co-productions so that they were the sole producer on, all of which I believe were distributed by Warner Brothers. So those five are 42, that's the Jackie Robinson movie starring Chadwick Boseman, Godzilla, Spectral, which I'm not sure what Spectral is, and then Godzilla vs. Kong, and then Dunes, the fifth one. That's yeah. Legendary Pictures. If you also saw their logo at the beginning of all these movies and was wondering. <laughs> it's great. I have seen their logo many, many times.
1: Uh, you know, I thought they'd been around for longer, but only 16 years. It's fascinating.
0: Yeah, it, I the only thing I could have named that they had done would have been the Batman trilogy, which is why I had written it down that I wanted to look it up because I was like, I wonder... I wonder what else they have done. Oh, in 300. They also did 300 as well.
1: All those have, it, you can tell, they're starting to build up kind of a studio uh, style, uh, which is not common nowadays, but uh, it seems like they have a little bit of one.
0: Yeah. And then we also wanted to talk about Dennis Villeneuve. Uh, no, it is Denis Villeneuve.
1: It's French. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. So
0: yeah, so wow. Denis
1: Villeneuve, something like that. I my French is not good enough Ooh. to do it, but that is his name, and that is that is the director of this film.
0: Yeah, and I I, sh- I did mean to mention that some of the baggage that I came into this film with, and I wish I were as strong as you are, Matt, but the Denis when he was doing his promotional tour for this movie, said some rather disparaging things about the. Marvel Cinematic Universe, how it's all cut and paste movies, which I don't know, maybe he's right or whatever, or maybe I'm I'm sure there's some truth to that. And it's a frequent criticism that has been levied at them. But I also think it's sort of a reductive criticism. But most of all, I just like, I don't want directors to like, crap on the stuff I love and then have me thinking about that before I watch their movie. You know, just like, don't do that. It makes me makes me not feel super good when I uh, watch your stuff. Yeah, and
1: as, as I've said to Zach in our conversations, uh, it feels like most of these directors are doing it you know, in the, pr- in the promotional stuff up leading up to their films. Because if you say something mean about the Marvel films, then it's going to get published and it's going to go around on social media and it's going to raise a lot of awareness for your film. And you are seeing a lot of directors that are using this strategy of saying something negative about Marvel films in the weeks leading up to their release and using it to drum up, you know, box office receipts when their stuff comes out.
0: Yeah. So his... Dune is his, I believe, 10th movie, and it follows a run of three really highly acclaimed movies, or at least everyone that I talked to who has seen them really liked them a lot. So in 2015, he did Sicario, 2016 Arrival, and then 2017 Blade Runner 2049. And so that's everything that comes directly before this. I wasn't familiar with any of his movies before that, so August 32nd on Earth, Maelstrom, Polytechnique, Incindies, Prisoners, and Enemy. And one of the things that that's interesting if you look at this list is his first four movies, he was the director and writer on those, and then he moved to just director. Um, for everything Prisoners through Blade Runner 2049 and then for Dune and also Dune Part 2 when that comes out he has taken, it, taken back over some of the writing duties um, he's not the sole credited writer on this movie that is very rare for that to happen in Hollywood but he's also taken on producer duties so he's director, writer, and producer of these two films which I thought was kind of an interesting... Trajectory to take.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think probably the explanation there for the uh, the change between 2010 and 2013 is before that those films are uh, French cinema, and so you know French language films. That and makes so sense. He's writing in his native language, writing in French, and then when he came over into Hollywood mm-hmm. and was making. Uh, English-language uh, cinema with Prisoner's Enemy Sicario Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. He probably didn't feel comfortable writing the script f- for those uh, to as much detail, and so started putting those ones together.
0: Makes sense, and yeah, I you have seen Blade Runner, I believe. I haven't seen any of those previous three movies, but knowing... The, the, what they're about i think it makes sense as preparation for doing something on the scope of dune uh, for sure
1: yeah it, it feels all of these you can look back and see very close you know parallels with with dune um uh, blade runner 2049 i loved i thought it was a really good film uh, i have not seen arrival and i know that makes me a bad linguist but it is it is not a film that i have seen uh and then sicario you know deals a lot with the desert and and drugs yeah. Uh, both two major themes in Dunes. So, you know, uh, we see we see a, a pattern here emerging from Denis Villeneuve.
0: Drugs and Desert. That's right. The double Ds. That's right. Did you want to say anything else about Denis? Um,
1: the only thing with Denis' work is uh, he has a distinct visual style that I think is he is developing that you see through all of these things. Um, and it's it's just kind of fascinating, a lot of these... You know, they're gorgeously shot films, all four of these. Um, Incredible, incredible work, incredible cinematography. Uh, Now, I know the cinematographer is not the same as the director, but you see a lot of the same visual style going through Denis Villeneuve's movies. And it is clear that when he is finding a cinematographer, he is picking someone and working with them in particular ways and kind of uh, using that to develop a visual style as they're going. Um in Blade Runner 2049 he worked with a Roger Deakins, in my opinion the best living cinematographer, and then on Dune he worked with Greg Fraser, who's also just an incredible
0: cinematographer. Yeah, did you want to talk a little bit about Greg? Let's Frazier? talk
1: about Greg Fraser. I love Greg Fraser. Um yeah. I find Greg Frazier's uh work to be really good. Um so I, I put together a list of uh some of his films. Uh he did, let's see. The the main ones here that I would pick out that I've seen, we have Snow White and the Huntsman uh, Zero Dark Thirty Fox Catcher, Lion Rogue One and also Dune and he's doing the upcoming film The Batman uh, with who's the guy that's in that one Robert I can't remember Robert, Robert Patterson, Patterson uh, Pattinson yes uh, the guy from the guy from Twilight yeah. um, th- this guy is a, an incredible uh, cinematographer that has done a, a lot of really good work over time he's somebody that got his start in uh, you know i don't want to say this because i think i might have uh, conflated him with another cinematographer but uh he's he uh, i remember his work on snow white and the huntsman really stood out to me uh, as being really beautiful even though that film was quite terrible uh and not good um and then the movie lion was where he really um Uh, Well, I guess Zero Dark Thirty, but Lion was so critically well-regarded at the time period when it came out... And then, obviously, he did work with Gareth Edwards on Rogue One, and the cinematography on that film is incredible. And they shot mm-hmm. that film, they shot a lot of film on that, and then kind of uh, had some drama behind the scenes, is figuring out what to do with it. But it is absolutely gorgeous cinematography, and you can see the parallels between uh, Star Wars Rogue One and Dune and the way that he filmed,
0: uh, filmed the scenes. Yeah, when I, I was already probably, like, moderately plus excited for the batman uh, but when i saw that he was it was, when i was imd being him after this and saw that he was doing the batman i was like ooh, ooh now i am yeah yeah Naim and he is
1: quite good and I think he's going to continue continue having a, a great career. Also, the thing that he's well known for is being one of the the cinematographers that de- developed a lot of the look for The Mandalorian on D- Disney Plus. So these are uh, all things that just look incredible as well. And you know, he, I think he's going to have a long career and put together uh, a lot of really good films because I don't think he's slowing down. Uh, I think his, this is his best cinematography yet in this film. I mean,
0: it, like, I don't know if we said it in our <laughs> reaction, but the film just looks unbelievable. Yes. Like, it is everything about it is visually one of the best
1: looking films that I have ever seen it is the the cinematography is just phenomenal
0: Yeah, and then the only other person I wanted to briefly mention we don't have to go too deep on him is Hans Zimmer and I <laughs> as I've said I try and go into the films cold so I did not know that it was Hans Zimmer but going into the film but I had a pretty good idea that it was Hans Zimmer by the time the credits were were about to roll. Just an absolute monster of the film scoring world. You can go look at the movies he done has done, and I think it's in the, like... 300 plus realm is just like absolutely everything and the I was re I'll put it in the show notes I was reading an article about the work that he had done on this movie and that they didn't want it to be any they didn't want instruments to really stick out as recognizable instruments so they did a lot of layering along with man, I wish I understood the process that they did a little better. But as I understand it, they were in like this echoey room where they layered multiple instruments on top of each other and then sent them through a synth or sent them through some kind of processor so that they just don't resemble any any known sounds, any sounds that it's like, oh, that's a clarinet or that's uh, this synthesizer that i know and it really does give the film a very unique sound and then the the other thing that i did not i felt kind of kind of stupid for not consciously clocking it but because of the power the matriarchal power that especially runs through the Bene Gesserit and a lot of the other factions the film is there's a lot of lady voices so that underscore everything and use <laughs> some of the languages that they had made up working with i believe the um language expert that they had used for game yes, of thrones yes same so. expert
1: it's a, mm-hmm. uh this is accurate yeah i mean it is the sound design the score is incredible on this film and you know if if this is the thing that you just cannot reproduce streaming it at home is the cinematography mm-hmm. and the score just are not the same experience at home streaming it than as they are in the theater? It's just not the it's just
0: not the same. It really isn't. No, he has the and there were a couple moments that kicked in that like man I don't even know what to call it but the Hans Zimmer like low electronica bass rumble and I remember from seeing his other stuff in theaters like the theater shakes oh yeah oh yeah you feel those vibrations and well i
1: saw it in imax and when we say the theater shakes i mean that is not a joke it is you can feel that thing rumbling right under your right under your bum
0: (laughs) got the rumble pack
1: yes exactly it is uh it is just an experience it really is uh you know when i take my kids uh i used to when we'd go to imax i used to have to take earplugs with them because it was so loud it was just like they couldn't handle it um so just like put those in at the beginning and you know leave them in there because it's gonna be loud enough you'll understand what's going on but yeah good stuff
0: uh and they i don't i don't actually know if i view this as upside uh I probably should, but they there was so much work that went into this score that they actually released three different soundtracks <laughs> That's for this. So there's the original soundtrack, and then I think there's like demos, and I forget what the third one is. But I'll I'll put links to all three of them in the in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I was as I try to do. I was listening to them today, and <laughs> it sounds great. You know, it's it's a cool, it's score. A cool score.
1: Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of memes too about the score, and it's just like you know. Uh, oh, I haven't. Yeah, seen Yeah, the those. Uh, a lot of like TikTok videos where people are, uh, you know, doing something mundane, and then all of a sudden the that score where it's like that vocal part, uh, where it's like ah, you know, oh. all that stuff, and it's like ah, suddenly makes it epic. Uh, good stuff going around. So.
0: All right, you'll you'll have to send me to a find few of them, some, and yeah. I'll yeah, people can can check them out in the notes. All right, let's move on and talk about a few of the scenes here. Uh, we've actually talked a fair amount about the movie before getting to the scenes, which I think is a little unusual for us. But what's the first scene that we have here?
1: So the first scene, the one that I really wanted to look at, it's the scene with the Jabbar. This is when the Benny Jesserit come into town and talk to Paul Atreides. That's a lot of words that are not going to make sense to, you know, 99% of the population. <laughs> so it is the scene where there is the creepy lady in the dark dimly lit room with the box that uh paul has to stick his hand into and you know he just feels intense pain while his mom is screaming in fear outside or not screaming she's trying not to scream in fear uh just outside the room and if he moves or flinches then this lady is going to jab a needle into his neck and kill him. So that scene, and it's one of those scenes from the book that I think really people remember really well, especially with this mm-hmm. you know quote that comes from it, the, the fear is the mind killer quote and all of those things. And I loved this scene in the film. It is just... This is one of the parts where the cinematography was just incredible because the way that they put this together, it's it's toplet with the this light like a little bit behind the actors and it comes in in this incredibly soft way and uh, it it just looks so good in this dark room. It's uh, intimidating but at the same time it's really clear uh, everything that's happening. Um, you can feel the emotional weight that's on the characters and then the way they come in with the cameras. It's it's fascinating the way that Greg Frazier uses the camera because he uses these cameras that have like a very very uh, small focus area kind of in the center uh, and then gets blurry quite quite quickly uh, as it goes towards the edge of the frame. Uh, and so when he's zooming in on a person's face, like the, the, the part of their face will be like uh, Paul's eye and his nose that will be in focus and then everything mm-hmm. else immediately is getting blurry quite quickly. And so it, it gives, you know, it just has this very ominous uh, feel to it and it is, feels at the same time like terrifying but also intimate and... Uh, I don't know. I love this film. I thought that it was incredible and uh, uh, possibly my favorite uh, cinematography in the entire film.
0: Yeah, I think this is the scene where it felt like the movie started or at least the movie like it's the first time it feels like you can finally get caught up in what's happening and you're not trying to figure out like, who is this? What are the politics? What's going on? It's just like it's the stakes are laid out very cleanly. It's like, take your hand out of the box and you're gonna die and uh and that I think that's the first time you sort of get that release maybe maybe a little bit before in the um the sword fighting scene but even then you're still trying to take in um the sword training sword fighting training scene even then you're still supposed to take in the rules of the shield and the slow blades and and whatnot the 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 thing I really liked about this scene is I don't, I really, really liked Timothy Chalamet in this movie. I had, (laughs) I already really liked him in Little Women, and I just liked watching him in this movie. But he doesn't really get a ton to do. Like a lot of what Paul has to do is keep things close to his chest, which means a lot of paul like a lot of what is necessitated for the performance is being very stoic and not letting on what you're thinking and so i thought that there were a couple like really nice moments in this scene where as you said it does zoom in on paul and you see him just like you see the pain growing and him trying not to show it and i mean that's a I know you're like actors and actors, it's their job and it's what they do. But, you know, not all actors would have done it as well as he did. And it's subtle and it works really well. I agree. So.
1: And uh, he's hes a great actor. And I don't feel like this film, uh, you know, 100% serves specifically him well in this one. And you know, it's kind of a lot of the things that you said. The character is meant to be kind of stoic, playing things close to the chest, uh, confused and not sure what's going on. And just kind of uh, approaching things without a lot of emotion. But also, he spends a lot of the film with a still suit on his face where you can't see what he's doing. Um, and so, you know, he's like, well, I guess he's acting. You know, he has some thing on his face and I can't see what he's doing. With that said, you know, Zendaya has figured out a way to make all that work even with her thing on. So, you know, just saying. Yeah, just, just saying. saying. But I, I do really like this thing. I think it's the, the best character work from Paul in this one. Uh, and it's basically him. You don't really see the... Uh, you don't get much of the Benny uh mother's face. I can't remember what she's called exactly. And so it's a lot of him and just seeing him and then cut with... Oof, I can't remember the actress that it plays jessica in this one his mom uh but cutting between her repeating the the fear is the mind killer quote and kind of trying to focus in her 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 emotions it's
0: uh rebecca ferguson
1: rebecca ferguson also did fantastic i thought she was great in this one uh as well uh fantastic work from her
0: the other thing though just to
1: add real quick is i was thinking about this one in comparison with uh the movie inside out that we watched not too long ago and it has a very completely different message about uh, emotions and fear from that movie. Um, and I think they could have used watching Inside Out and thought a little bit more about, you know, uh, the value of emotions uh, before uh, before all these things that went down.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess it. I guess it didn't make it all the way all the way over to Arrakis. Yeah, I guess not. Unfortunately, the, the DVD pod that we sent out hasn't hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next scene or sequence. I wanted to talk about sort of this whole section where Duke Duke Leto. Duke Duke Leto
1: Atreides, yeah.
0: Yeah, Duke Leto and uh, Paul are going to (laughs) see... See what's going on in this this world that they now are supposed to rule over or govern over or however it's defined
1: yeah Um, it's as as we would say Duke Leto Atreides and his son Paul Atreides are going to the planet of Arrakis that they have just gotten from the Harkonnen to uh, visit with the Fremen as they do spice harvesting so you know (laughs) in case you Oh, yeah. That's all, all? yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And I think... So, I mean, this, this sequence does a lot of things that I can't... I mean, I read the book so long ago, so I don't remember how much of it is in the book. But it does a lot of work to put you at ease that the protagonists that you're watching are, like, yes, they're going and harvesting the spice from uh, seemingly indigenous people, and there's obviously strife there, but you see a lot of actions by Paul and Leto that are really, I think, meant to signify, like, these are good guys whose hearts are in the right place. And so you have several times in the first scene where they're meeting with the Fremen ambassador, where their guardsmen are very quick to want to put the the Fremen ambassador in their place. And so the scene starts and he's walking in and they're like, stop, no closer, no closer. But he keeps walking closer. And the uh, Oscar Isaac is is nonplussed and Paul is nonplussed you know they (laughs) just let him walk as far as he wants and he spits at them and someone tries to pull their sword and you know no don't do that it's okay it's a sign of
1: honor on the planet of Arrakis you know you don't have much water to be spitting on a table
0: yeah and I I liked that that was a nice moment of what is customary for one human is not going to be customary for another human and it shows it really quickly that (laughs) customs differ across cultures and uh leto i believe it's leto has a line i should have written it down but something about like you respect me as an individual and i'll respect you and he's basically able to strike a deal with them or make a promise to them that hey we're not gonna we're we're not gonna invade your land and the fremen say and you can see like the surprise on his face that this was not how they were previously treated.
1: Yeah, and I you know, I think that uh, a big part of this is, you know, the uh, Frank Herbert as he's writing Dune and the things that are going on at the time period, especially with the Vietnam War. I think it's clear that he's trying to write this as, you know, a way that these A way to look at and kind of deconstruct the way that these colonizing forces are interacting with this planet and the people on this planet and trying to like look at ways where that relationship could become mutually beneficial if that's even possible. I think in a lot of ways the argument that Frank Herbert is making in the in the books is that it is not possible because it's based inherently on a system of exploitation and that it's only through like, you know, it, that colonizing the place is is not the way this can happen but instead like becoming like unifying with the Fremen and becoming part of them instead. And I don't know, it's it's interesting. He's dealing with very complex uh philosophical questions uh, that at the time i think uh, people were kind of struggling with and trying to figure out and we've kind of moved a lot of our questions about these kind of things forward in the past you know 70 years <laughs> and some of it holds up uh, and some of it doesn't so much but I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that's presented here
0: yeah and i think it's it's nice to get that relief of knowing that that there are at least like trying to do the right thing here you know they're not coming in and saying well <laughs> we're gonna take this spice whether or not whether or not you like it and can we have can we have like half of your land yeah you know? unlike the
1: space the space nazis from uh that had just gotten kicked out of the harkonnen so
0: yeah and then you also like sort of in tandem with that they have the then Truly, thereafter you get a little bit of exposition explaining uh, what the suits are and what the suits do and then you get to see them fly in their little ornithopters out to look at a look at a worm and watch the spice getting harvested and of course something goes wrong and it's a cool moment there's no immediately Oscar Isaac is like w- once something goes wrong he's like we're going to save those people like there's no question of can we do this? Should we do this? It's just, there are people in there and we're going to go get them.
1: Yeah. And even in the book, as I'm recalling, Duke Leto responds very quickly, but the book kind of presents this as, you know, Duke Leto responds very quickly, but then it has these like, parts where there's a like a an omniscient narrator that will pop in and be talking he's like and this is one of the things that leads to duke leto's downfall is that you know he cares about the people and so (laughs) those kinds of things are (laughs) interspersed through them and you're like oh he's gonna have a downfall coming up here soon this is why you know someone's going to betray him and that kind of stuff is like written into the novel as you're going along
0: oh yeah i don't i don't recall that at all also uh was pretty surprised that they just let him fly the ornithopter yeah
1: yeah so I can't remember if that happens in the book, but yeah, he's just like, take over. But to be fair, he is Poe so he's got this handled.
0: That's true, yeah. So they probably just knew. And it makes sense because you do... I mean, it doesn't make sense that he's the one flying, but it makes sense that they want to show that they're trained in flying, yeah. so that Paul can have his his flying sequence. That later. does make sense.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point.
0: Uh, and I like the part where he goes down and like
1: it's uh, extremely high from the spice and kind of faints as the the worm is coming in. And it's it's interesting because when when all this is happening, I didn't feel like the stakes of the worm approaching were that high because. You know, they're all responding like, yeah, this is how it goes, you know, it's fine. And even as they're evacuating, they're like, we're going to evacuate all the workers from here. But it doesn't seem like they're in dire straits. It looks like they're going to be fine until Paul faints. And then you're like, oh, okay, now this suddenly got kicked up a notch. He's just passed out and seen the future, and we don't know what's going to happen, and is he going to get eaten by this giant worm at any second?
0: Yeah, and I did write it down, uh, so it's an hour and eight minutes into the movie when you get get your first worm sight. First worm
1: sight, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good stuff.
0: Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about, about this That's scene? all I've got for that one. All right, so let's talk about uh, the next scene that I wanted to talk about, and that is the betrayal so when the the downfall of house atreides when the as you said the evil space nazis come on in and take over and so i have several conflicting several competing thoughts about this so i mean first of all the combat is incredible and it is like the it's a it's a huge action war sequence, but I never felt like I didn't understand what was going on. Everything felt very crisp and very clean, and it was like I could always tell who the bad guys were. I could always tell who the good guys were. The They were very clear about their progression from spaceships to people landing and then ground combat and then everyone getting over... Overrun.
1: Yeah, and this feels like it's such great work in tandem between the cinematographer and the editors. Uh, the editors like mm-hmm. keeping all these scenes, to, you know, they're just shooting a lot of different footage and then piecing it together and in, in trying to make it fit in a logical order where it's all happening. Um, what I love about the cinematography here is. Um, Denis not He uses a lot of these very wide scenes where he just starts wide and then keeps the camera kind of steady as the um, as the ac- action is happening. Uh, it's not a lot of like shaky cam or anything like anything like that. It, he picks a spot and then shoots through it. Uh, a lot of it s- is very wide and gives you this feeling that the Atreides are just being completely swallowed up by their environment. the The environments are so big and they have such few soldiers, and then the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar. These two. Uh, opposing forces are coming up and it just feels like they're overwhelming them in like this wave as they're coming and it yeah it looks all great the way this is all put together
0: well and there's the moment where it actually looks like they might be able to bottleneck them and fend yep. them off and then the other troops drop down behind them and it's just like oh yep, yeah they're screwed. oh no it's this, this is done it's an absolute they, they are that. they're gonna get completely murdered yep i did You've seen it twice, so let me know if I missed something, but it kind of felt like we it kind of felt like there was a scene that got cut because all of a sudden we were getting um the actually I don't know what his position was, but the guy who betrayed them, who brought Dr. U the shields down. Yeah. All of a sudden, he was admitting to a betrayal, that, and we didn't even, or at least I hadn't even clocked that a betrayal had even happened at that point.
1: Yeah, this, this part's the biggest deviation from the books, because in the books, it establishes that Dr. Yu is going to betray them on, like, page 5. It's mm-hmm. it does this omniscient narrator and it's like mm, eventually Doctor Yu is going to betray them and it's very sad but you know he's doing it for for certain reasons and then as everything gets going uh, the narrator then pops on in every now and then and reminds you oh by the way Doctor Yu is going to betray them any moment <laughs> now. Uh, and then the scene comes up where he actually does the betrayal, and you're like, oh, that, well, there it is, right? And then he gives the explanation of why he's doing it. So in the film, it just it feels very strange because you didn't have all of these scenes that are that are preparing you for when Dr. Yua does the betrayal. And so it feels like he just comes out of nowhere. And uh, this is one of the, my major sticking points with the film uh, because, and with the books, is it takes Dr. Yua and it, it's... Clearly, giving this, playing into this stereotype of like a, an Asian traitor, right, and all these kinds of things. Like, of of course, it's the it's the Asian guy that's going to stab them in the back and kill them. This is a, a stereotype mm-hmm. that was very common at the time period, especially for somebody like Frank Herbert, who uh, you know fought in World War II. Um, this, you can see the kind of racist implications that he would have on his mind, or that would have been a major part of his culture, and you know they really kind of kept it uh and didn't do much to push back against that in the film update
0: yeah i didn't even clock it because i was so like so surprised there was a betrayal like would it have been so hard for them to just have a couple lines earlier about the shields and then yeah when someone realizes they're under attack like what happened to the shield or even have dr Yua show can... up
1: in more than like two scenes before that would have been would have been helpful as well but yeah i agree it's yeah that part's confusing any
0: or all of that and then i also so they did make clear about the slow the slow blades and then there was the little hummingbird knife that can get through the shields because it stops right at the shield and then goes really slow to get through. But there were both in this sequence and then in the sequence with Duncan, when Duncan dies, There, it seemed like the shield also had properties where it can get overwhelmed. Is that the situation? Where if it just like takes enough hits, it dies? Um, it, Like how... How are the fast hits eventually getting
1: through? Yeah, so the, the way that it's designed, uh, again, I'm trying to remember all of this, but the way that it's designed, the whole idea is that it was developed as a defense against bullets, that like a bullet comes, and because it's moving quickly, it can't get through the shield. And then, but, so what happens is, like, the knife as you're coming and you're, you're pressing it, like, you're able to keep pressing and putting enough pressure on the shield that it can eventually break through and get through. And so the idea is, if you put mm-hmm. enough pressure on it, um that's all at once it'll have the kind of same effect as the slow blade is the way that i understand it so if you shot someone with like you know ten thousand bullets at once that would also be able to go through because it's enough like density in the same spot or uh, in the shield i don't know if that makes sense
0: it does make sense it's it's just they don't explain it at all though man another couple lines like it just yeah don't don't make people read read the book to figure it out like it's supposed to be yeah. And I'm, I'm sure, like, the movie's already two and a half hours. I'm sure the lines were there and ended up on the cutting floor at some point. Uh,
1: honestly, I don't think the lines were there after watching it a couple times. They they just don't take the time to explain it. And I think they're just assuming I mean, that people are going to figure out, you know, this stuff from context. Or just, like, let them absorb into the world.
0: I mean, the the lines were filmed, but then oh, gotcha. cut for, for running time. That does make sense, yeah. And, again, like if you had 10 episodes of 50 minutes like you have time to fit all of that in like yep. you have time to do it's a true. full five minute scene that explains how the shields work and i will
1: say one thing i was watching this with ethan and i did stop at one point with the shields and i said did you get how this works?" and he said oh yeah the slow stuff can go through and the fast stuff can't and i was like well there you go he got enough of it to understand the understand the gist of the film
0: yeah i mean they i did wonder about that but but then i was like well I caught it, so <laughs> if a dummy like me can catch it, I guess it's, pro- it's probably good enough. Uh,
1: it's a good measurement, so... If I can get it, probably a lot yeah. of people can. A lot of people are smarter than I am, so...
0: Yeah, I didn't really have anything else to say about this this action sequence. Yeah, that's it for me as well. So we can move on to our last scene of the film here. Yeah, let's fast forward to the,
1: to the, to climax. the climax. Though it feels very anticlimactic for a climax, in my opinion, because it's just, mm-hmm. you know it's the halfway point of the book and you're getting set up for the next, uh, for the what's going on next. But so at this point, this is where Paul has, uh, you know, escaped into the desert with Jessica's mom. Um, they've been trying to survive and they've been trying to escape from these worms. There's a lot of you know things that are happening. He's seeing the future and eventually he runs into these fremen that are uh, that are in like a what would he call this? Like a it's not a cave but in like a rock system, including Zendaya, who's who. I don't. Think she even has a name in the film uh, that's ever given? No, no name is. Yeah, given, maybe yeah. right at the end there, it's like, "Oh, this is my name," and you're like, oh, "Okay, uh, I've seen you in the visions like a hundred times before now." But uh, runs into them, uh, and we see what's his name, Stilgar, uh, which is the leader of the Fremen that had come and spit on their table beforehand, and they decide that they're going to travel with them, and then one of these uh, Fremen uh, turns towards them, and is like, "No." I don't want to take these with me. They're, we can use their water better if we just kill them. Uh, and challenges uh, the lady Jessica to a duel to the death. They respond, "You can't fight her because she's." They use a different word, but it's this. It just means Benny Jesseret, right? So you can't fight her because she's a, a holy woman. Uh, and he says, "Well, she needs a champion then." And Paul, you know, volunteers to fight this guy. He's never really fought anybody before and is kind of put into this situation where he has to fight against this trained warrior in a way that paul doesn't really understand he struggles with the fight at first he doesn't understand that this is ritualistic combat um at first he you know pins him down and uh, offers to let him live if he'll yield they say no you can't do that because this has to be a fight to the death it's a ritual thing and so then they have to keep going and paul ends up Killing him with the Chris knife, to the surprise of everyone there except, I think, his mom.
0: Yeah, and the... Again, the moment in this scene that makes it all click is... There's a moment where... It has to be Jessica says, he's never killed someone before. And it's like, not... (laughs) It's not until that moment that you realize what the entire movie's about. Like, what the journey of this movie is going to be. And that's a long time to make, to wait until you sort of get your bearings for what the course... What the
1: the key conflict or the key, like, you know, resolution is going to be, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think I I marked it down. It was pretty clear to me yeah it happened at 140 in the movie oh i don't remember what the scene was but i wrote down oh there's paul's refusal to the call and it's clear that it's like oh they mapped out this hero's journey for the two movies yeah this is the crossing the threshold moment
1: right like he's yeah. yeah
0: and the i don't know i don't know how because they filmed this movie before the second one was greenlit. That is correct. And they were just, like, that. that is just so much trust to put into, really into your audience. It's, that they're going to go with you for this journey. And just <laughs> hope that they're going to be able to deliver so that you can make your second film. Because I don't know... It's a, it's a lot... Like, if the second film was not greenlit, I don't think this stands by itself. I don't no, think yeah. seeing Paul Paul finally kill someone for the first time and agree to go train with the Fremen is, like, a satisfying arc for a story. It's not at it all. Is, yeah,
1: It's it's just... It's only half a movie. This is only half a movie.
0: Yeah. And it does make me, like, amped to see the second one. Like, we did put in a lot of work now and a lot of world building... But, yeah, it's it's a little strange. It's a little strange of a decision.
1: Yeah, it is. But I got to say, I am really glad that they ended up doing this. Um, I think if you're going to make Dune, then you just need to make Dune. And you need to not worry about whether, uh, you know, you just got to go fully in and commit to it and be willing to tell it in two movies. There's too much of a story here to get across in Uh, you know, to try and get across in one film. You need to take your time with it and do it the right way. And uh, I'm glad that they ended up making that decision, even though it was, you know, it's a very gutsy decision to make.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And maybe, like, in the wash it all comes out fine. But a part of me, I wonder... I feel like I wish they had decided they were going to make two... Like, if everyone had known that it was part one of two going in and that they were green lit because I did have expectations that it would feel like a complete movie so then when it wasn't it like contributed to a bit of my let down feelings whereas that is a good point yeah if I knew it it had always been part one of two and maybe that's just like this very brief time that it matters for or maybe it's just my own brain being dumb you know well
1: you know just to to add on to that it did say dune part one underneath of it at the beginning. So it's clear. It's clear That's that true. It like, did this do is that. Part one. Hopefully we have the money to make it. Come and watch it if you want to see part two. But I do also think that part of this is that, you know, if they had made this into a TV show, then you would feel that you would have felt a lot better about it.
0: Yeah. Which, I mean, they didn't, presumably they didn't know foundation was getting made when they decided to do this. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's true yes this is a good point point. and uh denise a film director he's not a yes. tv director it's like true. i the, there's a lot of similarities between the two but i don't think it's as directly transferable as yeah, you I might agree. think
1: i agree um i did want to add on this scene um friend of the show david had had mentioned that he bumped up against you know kind of the entire show but particularly this scene because of The way it uh, has these white savior narrative tropes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it is very clearly there. If anyone's bumping up against it, it, it's not just you. Like, that is very much a part of this film. Uh, This idea that Paul, you know, this white kid is coming into uh, Arrakis, to these Fremen that are uh, clearly coded as uh, people of color and even are uh, primarily um, depicted as... Uh, as people of color and he just like understands their culture and their uh their you know the things that they're doing better than they do right off right as he gets to the start in fact they even have a little prophecy that they put in about he will know your ways as if he had lived among you um when he puts on his steel suit the only thing that i can add you know i i don't have anything to say about this that that detracts from the problems that i see in it um, the only thing that i would add is that i think that frank herbert when he writes the book and the uh filmmakers as they made this film were trying to approach this with the understanding that this film is in that this story is trying to deconstruct that trope uh and in future installments of the book it is intended to deconstruct the idea of the white saver and like uh turn it on his head um subvert the trope um in my opinion they only did it to middling success in the books i don't think he quite sticks the landing um if they can pull it off with the film i think that would be you know not a thing i would expect but it would be cool if they did i don't know it's a it's a hard thing about this film and it's a thing that that makes this film challenging uh and it just is always going to be because it's a it's a it's a problem with the way the story is put together
0: is is that something that would happen in a hypothetical second movie or would it happen in like third movie, movie yeah. four or movie six
1: yeah it's it, it the third movie is where you start to see that happen or the third book is where you start to see that happen so, so I then guess we're talking like movie five movies, movie yeah. six yeah, yeah movie four or five or six something like that yeah
0: i mean hey if they all do like this one's done extremely well so yeah it's true i don't know i don't know, I don't know what the appetite is for uh for sand but I guess we'll, we'll find out. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. We've, we've covered a lot here. Do you have anything for our cleanup section? Just anything last to mention about the film?
1: Yeah, I did have one thing. I think it's the most important thing to say about the film out of everything, which is, uh, this film is one that clearly illustrates illustrates that Oscar Isaac is (laughs) incredibly attractive you know, possibly the sexiest living man. Uh, he is amazing in this film and a legit snack. And you know, that was my favorite part of the entire movie.
0: You're crowning Oscar Isaac's over uh, previous fan favorite Idris Alba. Uh,
1: that is a tough choice, but you know, just for me, it's got to go with it's got to go with Oscar Isaac, especially in this film with like. I don't know, the beard, it just has this interesting feel. And there's that scene where he's talking to, uh, to Paul, like by the ocean. And he's got like his gear on and stuff like that. And it's just, oh, that is a very attractive man. Um, so he is, he is gorgeous. He is wonderful.
0: And it it provides a very nice companion to the Oscar Isaacs that we get to see in, um, in the Star Wars trilogy yes uh, it's th- two different sides of the of the same man
1: yes or in ex machina where he was also gorgeous but in a very different way
0: Ooh, i haven't seen that one
1: he's, he's you know it has
0: I- oscar isaac in it and
1: he's he's adorable so you know i don't know what to say it's great uh
0: well uh <laughs> oscar isaacs uh if you want to come be the official mascot for stream it we'll be we'll be happy to have you
1: for sure for sure Uh, One other thing to add on in the extras, someone that I normally find very attractive and just they did not do it for me this one was Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. Really great at the beginning of the film, but then he shaves off his beard and comes back and he's all clean shaven and jason momoa keep that beard man uh it is <laughs> you know it, it, it did not work for me at all um you just it's so weird seeing him all clean shaven i was like what well, happened duncan auto you're doing a great fight scene but i'm even so distracted by your hairless chin so i don't know i couldn't handle that part so there you go these are my the my most important thoughts on dune
0: i don't uh i don't think- people expected the attractiveness quotient discussion to revolve around men who were not Timothy Chalamet for this movie but we just did it um i will briefly talk about i guess i could have talked about it in when we were talking about this scene paul is fighting with a severe deficiency like he can't see for half the fight because he's got hair curls in his eyes and i don't know I don't I in the desert, man. Int-
1: Shave that off. So. Yeah,
0: I don't know if that was like intentional to show, like how intuitive a fighter he is, and also how green a fighter he is. I don't. Know. A line would not have gone amiss miss commenting on it just so it did. If it was intentional, so it felt just a little more intentional. A little bit lampshaded, um, yeah. But it was something that I was like,
1: "How can he see right now?" <laughs> Uh, I think part of it might have been intentional that I don't think Tim- Timothy Chalamet is going to look great without without hair on his head. So that might be a oh, big like part of it. interesting. As well. So
0: just give him a little tie up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It's interesting. Um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to say uh, just the mouse. The mouse was super cute. So oh yeah yeah
0: Well what, what were we supposed to take from the mouse? Because we saw the mouse. You in are supposed previous... to take
1: nothing from the mouse in this film. It is supposed to become relevant Ooh. in the next one. Oh, yes. it, it, it's a plant. It's a plant. It's, okay. It is a plant. Yes. So
0: Great. Then, oh, before we move to closing questions, I know everyone has been waiting because uh, I did say that I watched this film with Mary and we do have uh, Mary's missive once again. And Mary would like everyone to know you have access to all of space and time. And the instrument that you chose to use was bagpipes. <laughs> she was very offended by...
1: Oh, man. I love the, the bagpipes. They're the so prominence random. Of
0: bagpipes.
1: Oh, I gotta say, though, you know, this is one of the things that's so weird about Dune is you've got Oscar Isaac, you know, this Latino guy that's a on stage with Jason Momoa, right? And... <laughs> Uh, Jason Momoa is named Duncan Idaho of all names and his son is Timothy Chalamet they're living on this like water planet and they have bagpipes it's just it's the future 12,000 years in the future every cultural influence has just been crammed together and who knows what's coming out the other side
0: yeah she did also comment on the name Paul it's like that's the name we chose for our (laughs) messiah and I was like well I think it's supposed to be religious but yeah I don't know yeah All right. So, do you have anything else you want to say before we close up here? That's it. All right. So, this is our podcast on Dune, our first one on a new movie. So, let us know how you think it went. Let us know what you thought about the movie. Let us know how you saw it. Let us know if you streamed it at home or if you saw it in the cinema. And if you saw it in the cinema, did you see it on IMAX or just regular or just in a regular theater? And uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something longer than a tweet or longer than a series of tweets, you can, or if you just don't have a Twitter, you can email us at podcaststreamit. Uh, just those three words, no underscores, no nothing podcast stream it at gmail.com and then next week we are we're gonna go all the way back to 1959 and watch alfred hitchcock's north by northwest and through nice little coincidence uh Matt told me before the show 1959 is the year that frank herbert began writing dune
1: yes so there you go uh 60 years of difference here Uh, very exciting yeah
0: yeah that'll that'll be a fun one uh do you have a closing question for us i do so here's my question
1: uh if you so this uh, on in this film uh they travel to the planet arrakis a desert planet they're gonna have to live there for a very long time so if you had to live the rest of your life on a planet with only one biome what would you
0: choose uh what are my options for biomes? Well, you
1: could have like a forest planet or a desert planet or oh, a water I planet see, or see. an ice planet, you know, or anything oh, like that.
0: Yeah, I get it. This is very simple. It would definitely be a water planet. Gotcha. I love I like I don't think I I I've always lived well at least in my adult life, I've always lived by the coast. You know, I grew up in Seattle and now we live in New York, New Jersey and not being able to see the water and not be able to i mean it's not like i own a boat but at least have the dream of being able to go out on a boat i i think that would be really sad the only bad thing is i don't know what i would eat if i lived on a water planet i guess i'd have to learn to eat seafood
1: you you would have to that's for sure uh seaweed in particular uh, i think yeah so um, i feel
0: like it would be worth it it sounds get a houseboat
1: that does Oops, sound yeah. wonderful. Yeah, some little floating house. The the Planet On uh, Foundation really works for this. So the one for me is, mm-hmm. I, I think this is going to be a controversial pick. I don't think people are going to agree with me. But, you know, when I read this book, Dune, I was living in southern Nevada, in the desert. And this is one of the things that really connected to me because I, uh, I just connect with desert culture so much and, you know, the stuff that's happening with the Fremen. I'd choose a desert. I, I would go to Arrakis readily. Um, I would love to have a still suit that I could just wander around in that's recycling, you know, all my water. Uh, and I love just... I I really like the desert and I don't mind, the you know, this... Uh, being particularly careful with resources like water and things like that. I, I would enjoy it, yeah. Sounds great no humidity,
0: to me. so that's nice.
1: And It's not cold. You know, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about snow ever. You will never have to shovel your driveway of snow. That's I'm good. That's all I need.
0: All right, my question for you. So you are opening the Dune theme park. You know, they have like the Hogwarts theme park, and someone had to come up with the recipe for butter beer. Okay you have to come up with the spice mix for spice oh dear what are you what are you using
1: um i'm gonna start with uh cinnamon because i think that'll be a really good uh base for this and you know it just ties in with all of these things but yeah like if i'm doing the theme park i probably can't put a whole bunch of hallucinogenics in there but you know, well, maybe you know, it's the
0: twenty-one and over room.
1: Lacing it with a little bit of cocaine, I think would go a long way, right? So, I'd mm-hmm, um, yeah, do a lot. Yeah, but uh, the, a little bit of cinnamon in here. I don't know what else, but that would be my base. So that's what we've got there: cinnamon and cocaine. I don't know how that turns out.
0: Yeah, so cinnamon would have been my choice as well, um, but I'll I'll go somewhere different, and I'm gonna bankrupt all of my investors because I think the. I guess it was probably, like, a parallel he was thinking of, but saffron, I think, would be mm. would be a good base, but <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. very affordable.
1: Yeah, this is true, this
0: is true. You know, but you
1: could charge pretty good prices uh, for people to come in there, I guess.
0: That's true. That's a great point. So
1: maybe we should be taking uh, cinnamon, saffron, and cocaine, mixing them all together, and this is, Ooh. there we go, right? Uh, An expensive, right. Hey. but, you know, whew, that'll give you some kick.
0: Hey, if anyone does it, uh, make sure to tag us. But don't say we told you to do it.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: All right. So that will do it for Dune. And we will talk to you next week for North by Northwest. Bye. Bye.